0: You're listening to the Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: Here's the question. How many threads connect us to the past, the present, and the future? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. You're going to love this episode. It's a real challenge for me, so stay with us because this man is one of the experts. On this episode, we go from Long Island, where we are, to England, and eventually to the planet Mars with my guest, Dr. Simon Morden, author of The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars. And I came across this quote from Professor Lucy Rogers. She said, full of intrigue about the book, like a beautifully narrated adventure detective story with left a satisfying thirst of wanting to know more. And Dr. Morden, Larry Davidson, welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Thank you very much for having me on, Larry. So what I'd like to do is, obviously we're going to take a deep dive, no pun intended, into your book, The History of, <laughs> About Mars, the Red Planet. But I believe Mars has an origin story, which you're going to share with us. But also what interests me is, there's two stories here. There's a story between the covers of the book, and outside the book, there's a story of you who created this book. So let's kind of go back to when where you grew up, when you grew up, and how did you get interest in looking at the stars in the solar system? Because this book speaks about your knowledge, but how to start someplace else, my guess, in early childhood.
2: Very much so. Uh, when I was, oh, I'm going to say about five or six, then I... Um, We moved to a small village uh, in the south of England and uh, so small there are no streetlights and we're yeah you know, a good few miles away from any any particular town um so the the night sky was always incredibly bright um, and incredibly important you You would step out the back door and the the night sky would be ablaze with stars um, I now live in a in a big city and uh, the night sky is very much poorer for it so we always ended up with you know going out and just looking at the looking at the stars Uh, there were there were obviously you'd see thousands of them but the most intriguing one was was this tiny red dot Um, all the other stars were obviously you know bright white and and all of the the planets were, were were light colored as well but there was this one red dot in the night sky uh that was mars and uh yeah, it always, it always captured the imagination.
1: Now, you wrote, correct me if I misstate this, but you lost an opportunity about 30 years ago. What were you referring to in terms of your history and your life and your progression to this book and beyond?
2: Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> I was doing a PhD on meteorites at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne up in the north, and I had progressed to uh, postdoctoral research after that. Um, NASA has a what we call in the trade the big book of meteorites every year nasa produces a a bible of um, meteorite finds uh of all the, the bits and pieces that they have and as a researcher you can literally write to nasa and say can i have some of this meteorite and they will send it to you so i was going through the catalogue and I saw this this one meteorite that had been found in Antarctica um, uh, in 1984 in the Allen Hills region. And I looked at it and I thought, well, there's quite a lot of that. Um, I'm sure they'll let me have some. So I wrote off, they send me back a few grams of it. Um, but when I started to test it, it turned out that it wasn't in pristine condition. Uh, the minerals I was looking for in the meteorite were heavily oxidized. Um, They basically rusted away. Um, So I put it to one side, I wrote a note about it, and I sent it back. Um, Now, the reason that the minerals were oxidized um, and, and weren't as I expected wasn't because of any earthly contamination. It was because that meteorite had come from Mars. Right. And I'd missed it. All the signs were there, and and I just, I thought, you know, no one is going to send a junior researcher in their, in their early 20s a piece of Mars. Um, and yet, there I was with it on my desk, and I missed it completely.
1: Now, Dr. Morton, with your permission, I'm going to ask you some general questions. One thing I know, there's a lot of things I don't know. That's not a mystery to my listeners for this podcast. So tell us quite, if you can, just, you know, Briefly, the Big Bang theory and what is a God particle? I was reading about that, and the New York Times was talking about that recently in something they wrote in one of the sections of the newspaper. So, the Big Bang theory we know that as as essentially almost like a TV show. But what is it, and what is a God particle?
2: Okay, so ah, Big Bang theory is that there was a point. Before time itself, um, when time was created, uh, the whole of the universe was a single point smaller than anything imaginable. Right. Um, and there was some calls for it to, to fluctuate, to wobble, and the whole of the universe just erupted out of nothing. Uh, this, this this tiny point in, in space and time, and the whole of the universe was c- contained within it. After that, the universe just expanded and it cooled. Um, it cooled enough so that um, matter could form and stars could form and eventually planets could form. And after 11.5 billion years, here we are talking about
1: it on your show so there's another book I came across hope you don't know mind I mentioned another book the book is written by Frank close the book is called how Peter Higgs solved the mystery of mass so I he I believe he's Scottish maybe is that correct uh, Higgs I, Scottish? I, I
2: believe so this is this is slightly slightly beyond me so the God particle um, Peter Higgs uh, was at the I think it was the University of Manchester, and he, he posited the idea that the, what we call the standard model, uh, all the bits and pieces that go and make up matter, everything from you know, what makes up an electron, what makes up uh, a proton and, and, and atoms, and all of the, um, the light waves we have, um, there is a, a missing particle, which um, is now now called the Higgs particle, but he, he proposed it, um, and and it was what gives anything mass, right. um, and and you have to attach that particle to to the the, the heavy. Uh, things, the protons and the, and the neutrons and the electrons, to actually give it mass. Whereas things like uh, light waves, uh, electromagnetic waves, don't have mass. So they don't have that, that particle in it.
1: This is the podcast Optimal Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is the author of The Red Planet, Dr. Simon Morden, who's challenging us all. So, w- once again, a general question, but this fascinates me. How significant is the James Webb New Space Telescope, which I believe goes back 18 billion years ago, which is even further back than your book, which is about 4.5 <laughs> billion years from Mars. So is this a game changer, this new telescope?
2: I think it is. Um, it's, it's been a long time uh, coming. And uh, we've had Hubble before that. The, uh, the reason why it is, is important is because that big Bang. That we were just talking about uh, happened enormously in the past, uh, billions of years, and the light from um, the light from those initial explosions, uh, from the first very first stars, uh, has taken. Billions of years to get to us. So basically, by having a huge telescope in space, we can treat it like a time machine. Right. We can look back in time to the very first conditions. Now, I very much doubt we will actually see the Big Bang itself because everything was just so incredibly hot and dense at that point but we we're beginning to see the very first stars um, and and work out what they were made of and how they were formed yeah it's 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 absolutely fascinating if you if your listeners want to tell the difference between a picture taken by the James Webb telescope and the Hubble telescope the stars in a Hubble telescope picture have four points coming off them. Right. And the pictures in a James Webb telescope picture have six points coming off them.
1: So I'm gonna do, I want to do a deep dive into the book. Well, I came across something else that came from NASA scientists. They said they discovered carbon-12, according to them, the most crucial isotope on Mars, can it, uh, supporting potential life. And we'll talk about life on Mars because you get into that book. It's really interesting. How crucial is discovering this isotope carbon-12?
2: Okay, so carbon comes in in basically in three different flavors, uh, depending on the number of neutrons in the nucleus. There's carbon-14, which is the most common variety, uh, and then there's carbon-13, which is uh, much more uncommon, and then there's carbon-12. What we know about carbon-12 is that when it's incorporated into organic life, it gets concentrated. So dead things tend to have more carbon-12 in them than they ought to. Um, If you were just going to take a standard carbon sample, you know, If 1% of it was carbon-12, then that would be fine. But in organic life, that percentage of carbon-12 goes up. So if they've discovered um, an abundance of carbon-12 in in, in, in probably in in a meteorite somewhere, then that is certainly an indication that life has occurred at some point. But there are other things that unfortunately can... Can concentrate carbon twelve, so it's not a it's not a certainty, but it's certainly a sign. In books, in movies,
1: in TV series, in news articles, it's called the red planet. One of my takeaways from the book is, it appears to be a red planet, but the planet itself is
2: not red. Is that accurate? Yeah, pretty much. Um, when you've seen uh, volcanoes erupt most recent in places like Iceland and on Hawaii, Um, the lava that comes out is black. Um, And that's pretty much the same over over the entire solar system. Wherever you have a volcano and lava comes out, that lava is black. Um, Now, the reason that Mars is red uh, is because there is a a process which turns the, the black dust right. that you get for volcanoes into um, into a red iron mineral hematite um, normally that tape takes place in the presence of oxygen and water but there's never been any free oxygen on mars um, it turns out that if you if you if you have enough time and you have enough fine grain material you can literally shake uh the the dark iron minerals and and turn them red and that's why that's why mars is red dr morton when i'm
1: reading something that's beyond my basic knowledge i try to relate to it somehow and i'm going to use an example that i remember being in the bottom of death valley in the summer and running out of death valley lowest point in death valley bad water and running out of that and the one thing that always stayed with me is how the colors change dramatically based on the time of day. What you do in this book for me is I call them ride-alongs. You take us into Mars going all the way back to 4.5 billion years and early in the book, you're you're giving us a description of the difference between moonlight and sunlight. And my reference point was being in uh, Badwater, being in Death Valley, and as the day progressed, watching the colors change between morning, afternoon, and evening, and that's always stay with me And that's how I kind of relate to, in my own simplistic way, to what you wrote when you take us all the way back in terms of the changing colors on the planet Mars.
2: Surely. Um, yeah. Mars in the beginning, um, it was very much like uh, what we would imagine uh, primordial Earth to look like. It's very black um, and very stark. The the best parts uh, certainly come later on when the, the atmosphere is cooled enough for rain to, to fall, and then you end up with this huge ocean. Uh, that stretches from, from the roughly from the equator to, to the pole in the in the northern hemisphere. And the sky then will be will this be brilliant blue right. um, and, and studded with clouds. Um, and, and the land of course will still be will still be that that black. Um, but yeah, the, the, the colors of Mars, um, even, even throughout the day, we, we know what they look like now, um, because we've, we've had robots on Mars for nearly, nearly 40, 50 years, which, which, is, which is incredible. Um, so you're, a, you're an
1: excellent narrator for your book, The Red Planet, but you write, Mars is a reliable narrator. So what did you mean by that?
2: Okay, so we know enough about Mars to start piecing together its history, Um, but Mars itself keeps its secrets very close, Um, and we don't know um, specifically when we end up with the Mars we look at today. It's trying to track back in time through uh, the the various pathways as to how mars turned out the way that we see it and it turns out that there are there are several paths that lead to the same place so so we look at mars and we say well we can we can rule that particular process out but we're still left with with a couple and and we don't know which which is the right one so in the book i just stick both in and i'm gonna let you the reader make up your mind
1: i think of planet earth and in terms of evolution adaptations so over the course of of mars from 4.5 billion years ago till today what role in that sense and you're in terms of what you understand, does evolution play and how the planet itself has adapted to all those billions of years?
2: We imagine Mars to be, you know, a kind of like Earth, but a lot drier and a lot colder Um, whereas Mars itself is is very much uh, a distant relative Uh, it's very much more of a cousin than a brother or a sister Um, so it's a lot further away from the Sun for a start Um, and it's also a lot smaller Uh, the mass of Mars is is just one tenth of Earth Um, and it's very much a a difficult place to be um even from the very start the the stuff that made mars um, there was a lot more gases and a lot more ices that went in to make mars so it ended up with this huge atmosphere that, that was um spreading out you know two three planetary radiuses uh, over it um crushing temperatures on the on the planet's surface but Below that, the the crust of Mars itself, um, whereas we have plate tectonics, um, where we have the the splits in in the crust and we have uh, a very mobile crust, Um, Mars never had that. So it always ended up as as like a solid shell wrapped around the planet, keeping the heat in. Um, And so Mars uh, developed in a very different way to, to the way Earth did because of that.
1: So let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Awful Periscope. My guest, Dr. Simon Morden, is the author of The Red Planet. He's been trained as a planetary geologist and geophysicist. And also, maybe he'll come back because he's also award winning a novelist. So next time you want to come on, we'll talk about some of the novels that you've written. Uh, you break this down. I, I've broken down to four components, and if I mispronounce, please correct me, because this is not the first time I mispronounce stuff on this podcast, so <laughs> I, I am not insulted. I'm just thankful that you get you correct the record. I can I break it down to in your book, the early years, Nowakian age, Hesperian age, and Amazon age or something like that, so I'm not probably pronouncing it correctly, but I broke it down to four separate components, and can you talk about each and how... The the transfer from one age to another age to another age shaped the planet we know today. First of all,
2: you pronounced it perfectly. Um, There is a God, then. (laughs) (laughs) The ages of Mars are are um, are so named because of what we call the the archetype terrain. Um, So you have the Noachian. Um period which i mean and and in a, in an act of, of honestly poor imagination, what happens before the Noachian is now called the pre noachian mm-hmm. um though very little of that is 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 visible, so the Noachian uh region of Mars gives the name to the Noachian period, which was basically from about four point three point nine billion years round to uh, you know, 3.4 billion or so 3.5 billion um so really early on um and that's when the ocean was on mars and there was lots of free water um there were still asteroids hitting mars so there was lots of cratering events and all sorts of uh, chaos happening um that transition between the Noachian and the Hesperian occurred when um, volcanism really kicked off on Mars. Uh, there's an area of Mars called Tharsis, um, which, uh, in a typical Martian way, is grew completely unrestrained and... Um, Try to basically take over the entire planet as it is. The Tharsis region is is a quarter of the whole of Mars' right. surface, um, but the the volcanoes that were belching out gases and things like that instituted uh, a climate change. They started to cool the atmosphere, um, and the everything started to get colder. Uh, the Amazonian period after that uh, was the, is, and we're still in the Amazonian now, uh, started at about three billion years. And that was when um, everything was cold and dry. The, the boundary between the Hesperian and the Amazonian is a bit ill-defined. Um, but we're looking at a, a period when there, there are no free, there's no free water on Mars or at least uh, not for uh, long periods of time. And the the atmosphere has mostly gone and everything is cold and, and generally horrible.
1: Now, earlier on in the discussion, the conversation you talked about getting access to a meteorite and kind of being disappointed. Um, people believe that if there was water, that can be a proof of life. I came across something, a fossil called the rock HCH 84001. Can that be proof of life in age going way back on
2: Mars? Possibly. Um, The the meteorite concerned uh, has some tiny little iron crystals in it uh, that, are, that are lined up. Um, on Earth, we have something called magnetotactic bacteria. Uh, they're incredibly simple life, but they're also incredibly common in the oceans. Um, and the magnetotactic bacteria use very similar little iron crystals inside their bodies to orientate themselves in the ocean. Uh, They can tell which way is up, which way is down. And that's important for the bacteria as they rise up and down the the column of water. So if we have found um, life on Mars, um, it will most likely be from those very early oceans um, and will probably be very similar to the very early life that we had here on Earth.
1: I'm going to jump way ahead and then come back because I guess I can do that. People want to, like, when I'm doing things, they, they can reach out to me. Surely. People are still talking about colonization, you know, the fascination of a new planet, a new Earth. And here's what I thought about. What happens if we do colonize Mars and from Earth we bring our own bacteria and viruses? Would that change? the planet we always hear about people that are indigenous living in isolated areas all of a sudden mankind comes in brings its own illness illnesses and diseases and changes dramatically the makeup of the place they're around in terms of older populations have you have you thought about that that's the big if question but i wonder do we have to be careful about what we bring from here to there
2: yeah, um, so one of the best job descriptions on, the, on, on Earth is the planetary protection officer. Uh, NASA has a planetary protection officer, and their job is to enforce the COSPAR protocols. Um, now, when you when you see um, things like uh, satellites and especially landers the, that are going to Mars and they're being built, and you wonder why everyone's wearing um, white suits and they've got face masks on and everything like that, it's not to protect the the instrument. From us, but it's to protect the place where the instrument is going from our bacteria. So when we send robot probes to, to Mars, Perseverance, for example, um, it is the cleanest object we have ever made. Right. Um, so we're, we're already protecting Mars from unwitting contamination from earth the problem is is if we go to mars um and and not to put a finer point on it we're we're just a germ factory we 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 are covered in in bacteria and we've got viruses in us on and outside of us and it is inevitable that if humans put a foot on Mars, we are going to start contaminating the surface of Mars. Um, The surface of Mars is incredibly toxic to life as far as we can tell. Um, So the chances of anything surviving for very long on the surface of Mars is, is limited. But on the other hand, we have we know about uh, organisms called extremophiles uh, that live and love to live in extraordinarily toxic environments. Um, it only takes one adaptation, one bacteria that will that will survive in in those those sorts of environments, and we could have contaminated the whole of Mars. Um, it's impossible to know how these things go, um, but I mean, there's no. There's no mistaking this, that actually going to Mars and, and putting our, our viruses and our bacteria on it is a big step, for so sure.
1: You write about something called the great dichotomy, and you break it onto two different theories. I don't want to get into, into the weeds too much because I don't have the knowledge to get, get that deep into the weeds myself, but talk about what is the great dichotomy And you you write about one theory is conversion theory, another theory is the impact theory. So what is the great dichotomy and what is the different theories?
2: Okay, so if you've ever looked at a picture of Mars, uh, one of the things that will strike you is that the northern hemisphere is is fairly flat, it's fairly red, um, and it's fairly uniform. The bottom half of Mars, the southern hemisphere, is much more heavily cratered, um, and it's, it's, it's darker. There's much more color variation in it. Um, what we didn't realize until we actually measured it is that the top half of Mars is lower than the bottom half of Mars. So the bottom half of Mars, the southern hemisphere, is between, you know, two and four kilometers um, Two or three miles taller than the top half of Mars. Now, this is this is patently ridiculous, um, but it's it's genuinely there. So there are two theories as to why this is. Um, the first theory, we'll we'll go with the impact theory first, because it's probably easier to explain. Um, it's basically that early on in Mars's history, uh, a leftover piece of of uh, planetary debris, basically just scalped the top of Mars. Okay. Uh, it took, literally it took the top of Mars off um, and it dumped all of the debris from the top half of Mars onto the bottom half of Mars. So that's why the top half is, is basically shorter and the bottom half is higher. The other theory, the, the convection theory, um, we were talking earlier on about uh, plate tectonics, the reason why it's believed that the top half of Mars is shorter than the, than the bottom half of Mars is that rather than having a system, full, full working system of plate tectonics where you have um, lots of currents and eddies under inside the planet, um, you just have one. And that single plume of hot material... Um, was, was transferring heat from the hot core to the outside of the planet and it ended up just pushing lots and lots of material onto one side of the planet and, and dragging it off the other. So those are the two theories. No one knows which is true, which is why I put both in the book. Um, both are fairly extraordinary, um, but they're our best explanations so far. Is the planet unusual, based on what we
1: know about the solar system and our own planet, that the poles have shifted, or maybe are currently shifting, on Mars? And when poles shift, what does that do to the planet in terms of its position in the solar system?
2: Okay. Um, yeah, so where Mars orbits, um, that's the relatively stable bit. It's, uh, it's about, uh, where are we, 140 million miles from from. Uh, the sun Um, but the the poles themselves yeah so when the um the great dichotomy formed it's it's believed that yeah it was just sort of at a random orientation but because if you've ever if you've ever spun an egg on its edge um on and and it will sit up and that's pretty much what mars has done so first of all you've you've actually got the the poles moving because of the great dichotomy and then again we've mentioned tharsis uh tharsis is huge so tharsis is one part of the planet where most of the volcanoes sit and that that's been erupting um lava for probably the better part of four billion years um And it's created this huge pile of volcanic rock. Um, And again, it's believed that that originally wasn't on the equator, um, but now it is, simply because the mass of all those lava flows has now just tipped the planet on its side um, and, and the poles have shifted again.
1: So we're talking about volcanoes, and I believe, if I read it correctly, the largest volcano in the solar system is on Mars. Is that accurate?
2: Oh, very much so. Um, Olympus Mons is is fifteen miles high. Um, as and it's it's an extraordinarily huge volcano. Um, if you imagine um, the the shield volcanoes of Hawaii, um, they're roughly similar in shape, um, but the the sheer bulk of of Olympus Mons is is extraordinary. I mean, it's there's, there's almost like a planet's worth of material there itself. It's, it's, it's vast. It's, um, it's the size of Western Europe across, and this is just one volcano. Um, This is, if you, if you, if you took it and you put it on top of say France, um, it would, France would just literally disappear under it. It would be
1: huge. My guest is the author of The Red Planet, Dr. Simon Morton, I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Another question that may be out of whack somewhat, but I think about the great trees, the redwoods in California. And you can date them. By the core, you can tell how old the tree is, and that's how you can come up with dating and what era it came from. How difficult is to date things on Mars, the volcanoes, and anything else there, we, we know you're going back to 4, 4. 5 billion years. But how accurate is your assessment in terms of dating what's going on in terms of craters, volcanoes, meteorites that came from there? And also, you, talk, you write in your book about tsunamis because we always hear about tsunamis here. There's movies about tsunamis in America, and they're pretty frightening. But I, I guess the tsunamis in, on Mars are immense compared to the tsunamis we experience here on, on Earth.
2: Well, they would have been. I mean, you've, you've, got, a, you've got an ocean um, for, for a, a long period of time on Mars where um, the, the water was literally from equator up to the pole and back down to the equator again. Um, the, the northern half of Mars being so much lower than the southern half of Mars, that's where all the water collected, so you've got this vast ocean so anything um any big meteorite hitting the surface of uh, that that ocean would have would have created a, an enormous tsunami uh, it would have been absolutely tremendous but yeah when it comes to dating mars we have a few meteorites we've probably got um i think it's about 70 or 80 meteorites now but we don't know where from On Mars they come come from and um, we can date those rocks using radiometric dating Um, but when it comes to actually looking at the surface of Mars and trying to work out how old things are we have to go back to something what's called crater counting. Um, Now I want you to imagine um, you've just laid some wet cement um, and it's perfectly flat but if you take a whole bag of rubble um, and you stick your shovel into it, and you fling it across your newly newly laid wet cement um, you 're going to create a few holes um, so what you can do then is you can smooth out say half of half of your wet cement, so it 's now a pristine surface, and then you get another shovel load of rock and you just throw it at random across your your surface half of the of your your cement surface will have twice as many craters right. as your as, as the other half, uh, and that's basically how we do crater counting. The older the surface, the more craters it has, and the the bigger the craters there are as well. So the very newest surfaces on Mars are are essentially uncrated.
1: So here's another simplistic attempt on my part to, to go from what I can understand to what you're going to. Explain for us. When, we, when you take a rock and you skim it across the surface of the water, there's a ripple effect. So when things hit Mars, was there what I call, in layman's terms, a ripple effect on the surface
2: of Mars? Well, there can be. Um, you you have a um, – and the thing about the cratering events on Mars is that one rock will all will can never come back. You can't you can't use the same rock twice. Um but yeah, there are places on Mars where you've you've got um really strange shaped craters uh, and 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 possibly chains of craters. Now some of those craters are, are going to be made by uh volcanic processes, um, but also you can have uh, secondary craters from from impacts. So you have a big rock coming in at, a, at an oblique angle. There is absolutely nothing uh, to say that all meteorites have to strike the Earth straight down. They can hit at an angle. That's not a problem. Um, and it will throw out debris in all directions, but you will end up with uh, that debris also cratering Mars. So you will often have primary craters and secondary craters following on. Based on
1: science... And science is always evolving, as we touched upon before. It's a, it's a living organism in a sense. It's, it can change our, as new data comes in. It comes in all the time. Should the planets in our solar system be of different positions and size? Is our solar system kind of unique? And I think about Jupiter, which, which I describe as a voracious planet it's probably much bigger than it should be but it's constantly taking stuff in so you want to kind of elaborate on that and where i'm trying to go in terms of understanding our own solar system
2: right so when we when the only solar system that we knew about was our own we kind of thought okay well that's what solar systems look like Uh, and then we developed the ability to look out deep into space and around other stars um and we suddenly realized that no one else's solar system looks like ours um their solar systems have evenly sized planets at even even spaces um what they don't have is they don't have one tiny planet close in and then two reasonable sized planets and then a little planet and then a gap and then four massive gas giants um, sticking out at the other end of the solar system, so our solar system um, if you if you if you want to run the run the simulations is about one in every ten thousand and possibly more rare than that so we we are a real outlier in the way that our solar system works jupiter is a ridiculous planet i mean it's it's a genuine monster um if it was any bigger uh in the sense that it was it was heavier it would actually be smaller than it is because its mass would start to contract it inwards so it's about as big as any planet can reasonably get um now the good thing about Jupiter is that it seems to actually be protecting the inner solar system from lots of debris that that's coming from from much further out in the solar system all the 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 comets and the the icy bits that were left over at the formation of earth and jupiter seems to be doing a remarkably good job at hoovering all those up rather than letting them all pelt into the inner solar system and, and wipe us all out. So, hurrah for Jupiter. All right, I'm going to hopefully uh, state this correctly. You
1: wrote about Mars. Its heart may be slowing, its lungs barely inflated, its blood's sluggish, but it's still in motion. Now, I think about climate change, because you write about climate change and the effects on Mars or so going way back to 4.5 billion years to today. And I wonder, in terms of climate change on this planet, is this planet eventually no longer going to be viable unless we correct what's going on? And people say we have to do it right now, not 10 years from now, not 50 years from now, not 100 years from now. I'm not a pessimist, but I wonder, potentially, is this planet dying?
2: I I am very much with the very recently deceased um James Lovelock uh, and his Gaia theory. Um the the earth will continue without us. Um life is very tenacious uh, and and life will continue. Uh, we've had mass extinctions before. Uh, we've had one in the Permian period. Uh, we've had um, one in the Cretaceous at the end of the Cretaceous that took out the dinosaurs. Um, so we've had mass extinctions before that have taken out possibly you know eighty percent of all species. Um, but life has still persisted. Um, what we're concerned about is is this planet going to be uninhabitable for us um now we've just in the uk had a a our first breaching of 40 degrees centigrade right. um, and it was uns hot i mean i'm where 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 i am at the moment in 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 england um it was actually recently close to the hottest place in in england um and and you walk outside and you think "Ah, no no i'm just not doing this um but i ah, it's it's just an extraordinary level of heat. And when you consider that there are places in India that are, are now in danger of reaching 50 degrees centigrade um, um, and places in, in the Gulf uh, and the Arab states which will reach that temperature on a regular occasion, that is that is untenable. Uh, people cannot live. Um, so what we will see is we will see parts of the earth become uninhabitable. Um, people who live there will necessarily have to migrate away or they will die. Um, And that's when the real problems start. We will have nations closing their borders and other nations desperate to to get in. Um, Places will disappear off the map um, and it's going to get really ugly. Um, Like you, I am not a total pessimist. Um, we, we have the means to hand to ride this out uh, and fix it. Um, a lot of it depends on our will and what we do personally, but not just what we do personally, uh, but what we do corporately. This is very much a joint effort. Um, and and we need to to put people in positions of authority who will
1: do what's necessary. So what I like to do, I always like to end every segment with my guess. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? So I'm going to throw it out to you. What did I get right? What did I get wrong in terms of maybe missing something, in terms of deepening? Getting deeper into your book, *The Red Planet*, which is a national history of Mars. So, what did I get right, Dr. Morden? What did I get wrong?
2: Well, all your pronunciations were completely on point. So, so we're good with that. And we've got lots of interesting things that we've we've talked about. Um, and and there are there will be plenty of books in your library um, and online courses from from universities. If if anyone is is more interested in, in that. And obviously there's, there's my book too, which obviously it's going to be on sale and that's fine. Um, one thing I would really have, of, of, to, uh, have, have talked about, uh, um, in, in this period is, is how terrible Mars is for, for, for going to, um, it's, it's a genuinely awful place. You, you, um, And and yet we are so drawn to Um, it—that little red point in the sky that that I was was looking up at when I was a Um, child—and just to to spend, you know, just to spend a day there, obviously in a in a spacesuit, and and just sort of leap around on the surface, despite the, the the lack of atmosphere, despite how freezing cold it is, despite the poisonous soil despite the radiation um an awful awful place but just in terms of stark beauty in terms of going somewhere that we've never been before um can you imagine how wonderful and inspiring that would be
1: that would just be great well the one thing mankind is gifted with is imagination so I want to thank you so much Dr. Simon Morden for having this conversation with us, it's been a pleasure an honor, and honor and once again I have a lot of takeaways from your book I can highly recommend the book, the book once again is The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars and Simon if I can don't mind you calling by your first name, thank you so much for joining the podcast and thank you very much for hosting me Larry
2: it's been brilliant
1: I'm uh, Larry Davidson after the break some final thoughts, this is the podcast Artful Periscope, we'll be right back
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: We're back on Long Island from Mars. I want to thank my guest once again, Dr. Simon Morton, joining us from England. His book is called The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars. When I sit down with authors, I want to have takeaways we got an episode coming up with James Grady. Remember the book, Six Days of the Condor? Which became the movie, Three Days of the Condor, with Robert Redford. And the book, his new book called This Train, which is a thriller on a train, but also is a character study. And on one of the characters on this train is a journalist. And this is what Grady wrote, which is a takeaway that I hung on to. He said in terms of journalism, They write about the trees and the forests. Investigative journalists write about who owns the land, which I think is really applicable today. Who's behind the scenes, who pulls the strings, and who controls everything. Before I say goodbye, I want to ask a favor. Listen to our podcast, Rate and Review. I would appreciate that greatly, as well as the whole staff here at Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time, bye-bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cricifaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at Starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us
1: all.